Sharpen your sword and ready your chariot. We're in for an epic adventure. Welcome, mere mortals, to another book review. The book review for those who want to transcend beyond mere mortality. And man, I'm glad we're talking about mere mortals because today I have for you The Aeneid by Virgil. Now, this book was published in 29 to 15 BC, or I should say written in that time. It's very hard to know when it was actually published. And it talks about the epic saga of the Trojans after they're defeated in Troy, and in particular Aeneas and his, I suppose, crew, his entourage of, of men, as they travel from there and go across, I believe it's three different continents and four different countries. So they start in Troy, which is modern day Turkey. They travel around the Greek islands and through that area. They eventually land in Carthage, which is Tunisia. And then before finally heading off to Italy, where they try and find a new place, a new home, a new city to create for themselves. The book is told in a non-linear fashion. So we're learning more about Enos right at the middle point of his journey. He then recounts as part of a story going from the beginning up to the present moment and then from the present moment into the future and, and what holds from there. But I'll tell the general plot of it going from the very beginning, I suppose, and then ending at the end. So the beginning is the sacking of Troy. So we all know the Trojans add their little horse into the mix, the ingenious scheme by Odysseus. And so when the, the horse enters into the city, we learn of that. We learn of how the Greeks emerge and then basically sack Troy. Enos and his family manage to escape, but just barely, and they meet up with a bunch of other Trojans who are also managed to escape. However, their city is ransacked. They have nowhere to go. They need to find a new home. So they build some ships, start sailing around Greece, and start looking for a new home. Unfortunately for them, they can't find one right away. Fortunately for us, we get to hear of their epic adventures. And so they keep getting derailed, so they'll find a new place. Ooh, maybe this is a nice place to set up shop. But the gods will keep saying to them, and in particular to Aeneas, hey, no, you've got to keep moving on. You've got a destiny to fulfill in founding Rome, in reaching Italy and creating a new Troy there. So they continually get moved on and moved on until they finally reach Carthage. And Carthage is the ultimate pit stop. They find a beautiful princess there. They find a welcoming and joyous town that brings them into their fold. They find bountiful resources. But continually the gods are saying, Aeneas, Stop listening to your penis and get going. You need to reach Italy. You need to move on. So he does and he continues on and eventually he reaches the promised land. He gets to Italy. So they reach the mainland. Boom. Yes, we've done it. Smooth sailing from here. A couple of diversions from Aeneas into the underworld. And yeah, we'll start building our city. We'll start building the new Troy. Unfortunately, once again, not super easy for them. In this case, it's Hera, who in this book is called Juno, who is the wife of Jove, aka Zeus, still has some beef with them from their old days being Trojans and their continual annoyance of the Greeks who she personally loves. And she wants to smite them down. She wants them to suffer, to cause pain. And so what initially seems pleasant relations with the Latins already occupying the lands, Enos gets promised a bride who is the daughter of the king just turns into absolute mayhem. It's a far narkle. Epic battles arise and this is just moving more into the territory of the Iliad where it's the Trojans fighting against another army and it's just pitched battle going at it until the very end of the novel where 
as you would once again believe the Trojans come out, the main story, the main principal characters win the day. Although it's a poem written originally in Latin in the dactylic hexameter, the translation I have, which is by Robert Fagels, is more of a continuous story. So it doesn't have that, I suppose, stopping and starting that feel of a poem. It's more of a, as if I was reading a more modern day English fictional book. So the poem, the story, is split into 12 books with each book containing around 50 to 60 pages. So in total, it's 350 roughly. And the first six of these correspond more to the style of the Odyssey with Odysseus constantly traveling. He's moving from place to place. There's many adventures here and there. So this is where they're meeting the harpies on a strange island. This is where there's sexy princesses who are seducing and seductive. This is where he'll journey down to the underworld and find out all the crazy things that are happening to his father and his heritage down there. And the second six books correspond more to the Iliad. So this is where they're in a fixed location. They're in one spot. This is where the grand battles occur. This is where they do their subsequent funeral rites. This is where there's the negotiations, the one-on-one -on -one battles, and where the gods themselves get more directly involved coming down, taking human form and weaving their magic and doing their little things. We've learned the plot. We know what happens. Let's get on to the themes. And one that jumped out at me was pietus. And this is an obligation or dutiful respect. So many times in the book, we'll hear of pious Aeneas. And this is where it's showing his moral superiority, his courage, his respect, his duty, all these obligations that he has, whether it's to his family. So there's many instances of him paying respects with funeral rites and funeral games to his father and Chesius and Chesius, and also of his son who is in a very similar boat but paying it up upwards in respect. Also to the gods and how much he respects them and how much he has to do for them, even against his will. Also to his heritage, so there's an obligation for him to build this new city, to build this new Troy in a foreign land so that he can build, be the father, I guess you'd call, of the Roman race. And there's all these things that he is obliged to do where it doesn't particularly suit his character or what exactly he wants to do. But there is this underlying feeling that, hey, I need to do these things. What makes this cool is the historical context. So Virgil wrote this in the heyday of the Roman Empire, I guess, of just before the birth of Christ. And it's really interesting to wonder, did he write this as a reflection of the Roman people as they already were? They were, they were already these types of things and he was showing this is what the Roman is in a more you know, full heroic context without any of the imperfections? Or was it more of a striving ideal? This is what we'd like to be as Romans. This is what we're trying to get. And it's hard to tell whether this is good or is bad even because you would sort of think, oh, pious, it's more of a religious context, that word, but the duty and obligation, you might think, mm, that's a good thing to have, you know, a respect for your father and your heritage. But it can also be used, I suppose, in weird ways. So, I don't think there's much justification needed for them to basically invade a foreign land, Italy, and then just start fighting everyone there. Even though they're not the aggressors, there's still this sort of feeling in the air that, oh, we're doing this out of duty and obligation and respect for our forebearers, for the deceased Trojans, we need a new home. So we'll use this in this way. So you can sort of see how it could be good and bad in the same context. The other thing that really jumped out at me was fate and me asking myself, how much room is there for free will in this? 
we see so many times that they make sacrifices in the book. They make a sacrifice when they're going to do something new, when they're sailing to a new place, just before they start a war, just after a battle, just before a celebration, all of these sorts of things. They're constantly making sacrifices. And I always ask myself, what are they making these sacrifices for? Are they asking for, for example, when they're just about to fight? Are they asking for a good outcome or are they asking for the gods to instill them the the courage, the necessary strength, the energy to be able to then use their own free will in a way to, to fight the aggressors and to win the battle? And how often would fighting fate, the gods, actually succeed? We see in the poem or the Aeneid where Turnus, the main adversary of Aeneas, who I guess takes a very similar role as Achilles and Hector in the Iliad, their epic battle, there's constantly being shown signs of, hey, Turnus, watch out, the gods aren't on your side. So they'll be constantly whisking him away just so he doesn't have to fight or doing all these certain things. And he's constantly having to decide, you know, am I going to fight even though the gods aren't on my side or am I going to risk it anyway? Do I be- actually believe I have a chance or is it fully fixed in my fate and it's my fate to fight even though I know I'm going to die, but it will bring me glory. It will be the right thing to do for a man in my power and my position. It's really hard to tell psychologically what was going through their heads. And this is the mythology that has all of these things connected to superior beings where you can't alter the outcome of what's going to happen. They have the gods, obviously, who for whatever whim or will, they will do whatever they want. But then it also has the three sisters of fate. So these are actual characters who spin the thread and put it up for each individual person. That's not shown in this, but it's still reflective of the time and the people who were there. And I would love to know, absolutely love to know, what would it be like to be a Trojan or one of the Greeks or one of the people from Carthage or one of the Italians What went in their mind when they were doing these sacrifices? And I'm guessing it would be sort of something like I have at the moment, which is a mix of believing in free will, but also believing in determinism, aka fate. So using it for your particular advantage when maybe something bad happens and you say uh, that was always destined to happen, nothing could have been done to, to prevent it. But then when something good happens, maybe you could be like, ah, yeah, that's when I use my free will. That's when I use my strength to to really get beyond this certain problem. And so in almost in a way, using psychological tricks to make yourself do the right things. So we swim through the EGNC and we're finished with the themes. We come on to my personal observations. And Aeneas is my favorite character by far of the three epics that I've read. So the Iliad, the Odyssey, and now the Aeneid. He just comes across as quite likable and having some traits which most of the other characters don't, i.e. generosity. He's very generous in the funeral games for his father where they're celebrating, where people have some misluck happen to them. He'll still give them a prize. He's also very caring about his men and shows a lot of grief when his men in particular die and doesn't even need to be the main characters. Uh, in comparison to, say, Odysseus, where his whole crew gets wiped out and there's barely a sign of remorse from him at all. So I really liked Aeneas. He was my favorite. Although, that being said, Achilles and his, I guess, untempered arrogance was beautiful to read as well. I found him funny in just being such a caricature, being so full of himself that it was like, man, I actually want to know more about this guy. Another observation, perhaps even a takeaway, is that life is brutal and unfair. Damn we. 
so many of the characters in the book just have random stuff happen to them where it just seems like, well, what, what was the need for that? I'll take, for example, Palinurus, who was the helmsman of the fleet of Aeneas and seemed like a top bloke just doing his job. And then the gods come down onto him and they're saying, hey, Aeneas, you should maybe take a break, man. You're, you're at sea, you're driving hard, you're, you're steering the ship to Italy. Just take a break. And he's like, I've got this, gods. It's all good. Then they're like, well, screw you anyway. We'll make you fall to sleep. And then he falls into the ocean, almost drowns, gets to, finally gets to Italy and then just gets killed anyway. So it's like, God damn, man, that, that's not fair. And on a grander scale as well, Juno's hatred of the Trojans just continues on. So her whole deal with that was that initially Paris took Helen from the Greeks. So the Greeks went to Troy, eventually ransacked their city. And you think, oh, okay, that's maybe fair recompense. They stole a girl, we burn down your whole town, kill your women, enslave your people. Maybe that will make it fair or even. But no, she is still pissed off at the Trojans. So every step of the way, she's making it difficult for them. She's making it hard for them. And there's just one unending tragedy after the next. Bam, bam, bam. People are dying, left, right, and center. The only thing that didn't happen here was a plague come through and just wipe them all out at the end anyway. As any good poem should, we come to the summary, we come to the end. And for me, this was the best of both worlds. I really like the adventure style of Odysseus's travels as seen in the Odyssey. And then I also love the epic pitched battles that were seen in the Iliad. And so this book has them and roughly equal as well with the first six books being more of the adventure style. And then the second six being more the fighting epic grandness. So it is my favorite of the bunch of the three. And I would say it's because it does have those two different aspects merged into one. And then also just because Aeneas is so much more likable than say Odysseus, for example, or Agamemnon or Hector, I just found him really cool. And so that I think made me want him to succeed and made me more invested in the story. I'd say this book is perfect for those who love mythology. So if you want to know more about the gods and their wrath and what they get up to up in the sky, if you are a mere mortal like me and want to learn about other mere mortals, but in the past and what they did of Aeneas and these sort of semi-gods, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And obviously written by Virgil, it's one of the classics. I'd also say it's pretty good if you want to accidentally learn about history and geography. I never knew anything about the Greek Isles, where they were located in relation to Italy, for example, where Carthage was, where Troy was, all of these places. It's fascinating to find out. And in the version that I have, which is the Penguins Classics translated by Robert Fagels, it does include some of these supplementary maps and notes and things like that. So overall, the Aeneid by Virgil, I'm giving it a very solid seven to seven and a half out of 10. So mere mortals, we've come to the end of another book review and I want to thank you for joining me this far. If you'd like to hear more book reviews, hit the follow button on whatever platform it is you're listening on. Or if you want to interact with us, come to our Instagram at mere mortals podcast. Other than that, I hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are in the world. Kyron out.